Okay, the rest of you, uh, okay. There were some reactions to one thing I said. I mean, that were written down. I got a, a bunch of notes, not five or six. Um, <clears throat> somehow or another, I've forgotten which context, I said that uh, I'm not a Buddhist. And some people were overjoyed to hear that. This is, there's usually a pattern to this because they feel, oh good, you're not going to make me be any particular religion, I've had enough of that. And other people were very disappointed in me and even annoyed or worse. Uh, or wondering, how can you, this is a Buddhist meditation center. What are you doing? You started it. What, what's... <laughs> okay. Uh, the question occurred, it became an issue some years ago on a Wednesday evening just like this in a group of people about this size. And at the end of the talk, someone asked a question, asked me a question directly. Are you a Buddhist? And what, was, what has been reported to me, because I don't remember it, is I got very, very silent for four or five minutes, and I said no. Um, I was trying to weigh that. But it has to be explained, uh, because um, Buddhism is, is uh, a misnomer. It's not an ism. The teachings of the Buddha have nothing to do with uh, blind faith, or in other words, just faith. I want blind is already a pejorative, where faith is enough. Uh, it's not, a, um, it's not a, a dogma. It's not a doctrine that you're expected to believe in. Um, it's, in short, all of the associations with ism, it isn't. Um, <clears throat> also, some people will say, well, then, is it theist or is it atheist? It's non-theistic. As far as I can tell, the Buddha left that one alone, meaning some people will say well, the Buddha was an atheist. Uh, he never came out and said anything like that. Uh, he just was, it's non-theistic. That's a little different. Uh, so why, uh, in reflecting on it, uh, and, and that evening I did, and I also uh, said why I said no, why I said I'm not a Buddhist. If by, <clears throat> I hope the people who wrote the notes are here, if not, um, at any rate, uh, let's see where it goes. Um, if by that is meant uh, that it's an identity, uh, an affiliation, a membership, then I'm definitely not a Buddhist. I've had enough of that personally. Um, having come from an Orthodox Jewish background, 14 generations of rabbis, a uh, grandfather who was a rabbi, quit, became a Marxist, uh, quit that, said that was worse. <laughs> Uh, and I inherited all of that. It's a, a kind of confusion to some degree. Um, so it isn't an affiliation for me. Um, and in terms of what, why you're here, or some of you I, I gather may be new, um, everyone's welcome here. By that I really, I really, unless we discover that this is really dangerous for you, or sometimes meditation it's, it may not be the right time in your life for meditation. But for the most part, um, everyone's welcome. It has, you can be an atheist. You can want to be a Buddhist. There's some ceremony, some ritual. Um, I'm not down on that. Um, you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, the key is that um, 
Well, here's an example. When, when the decision was made to, uh, to attack Iraq, uh, to bomb Iraq the second time, uh, there were a couple of people, there were some people in the community who agreed with it. Most people, you can predict, didn't agree with it, right? It's obvious. Okay. It's Cambridge and environs. So most people thought it was, uh, uh, were really upset by it. But there were some people who felt it was a good move and it was uh, necessary and approved of it. And that sparked uh, some anger on the part of two or three people who openly said those people should not be allowed to come to the center because if, if they have a political view because the Buddha said nonviolence and so forth. Um, so I had to talk my way out of that one because it was directed at me. And my own feeling is we want this to be a place where people feel safe and that they can be themselves. And if you have a deep religious faith, including, as some of you know, you can be uh, devout in Catholicism or Hinduism or Judaism or uh, Islam or whatever it is, um, that's really uh, not going to get in the way necessarily unless you put it in the way. Because uh, my interest in all this, that is, if I'm not a Buddhist, then why have I been doing this? Why did I start this center? Why have I been doing it for almost 40 years and do it, giving everything I have, doing the very best I can? Uh, to me, the teachings are a guide to living. Uh, there is, and the Buddha go, talks about this openly. It's not that I'm some incredible rebel. Uh, the Buddha is, is saying, test everything that I say in one very famous sutra. He's saying, don't just believe it. Now, you do, there's, you do need a certain amount of faith, provisional faith in Buddhism, it's sometimes called, or provisional conviction. How can you do anything, get something started to find out if it is valuable, unless you hand yourself over to it to mobilize some energy? I mean, if you go in, well, this is all a bunch of nonsense, uh, and you, n you never follow the instructions, and you're never going to find out if, it, if there is anything real or, or not. So a certain amount of trust, of faith, is necessary to get going. But I personally never ask beginners to take the refuges, the precepts, the three refuges, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, because if they're new to this, it would, they, don't, they don't know what it is they're taking refuge in. It's just silly. Uh, to what? So, now, if... If people do this because they want a sense of belonging, they want an identity, I don't have a problem with that. Now, if they keep doing the meditation, eventually they're going to have to look at that because the meditation does that. Now, much, perhaps most of Buddhism, having traveled about the Buddhist world a fair amount, uh, are not, most people are not meditators. Even in Zen monasteries, there's not that much real meditation going on, honestly and truly probably more going on here than in a lot of other places. So most people, for example, I found in Thailand and in Korea and in Japan, uh, people pray to the Buddha the way people would pray to God, to take care of them, get a new bicycle so a child can get into college, so someone can heal. And it's a, a, it's a, a kind of consolation and a source of solace. Uh, if a person doesn't want to go any deeper than that, I, I don't want to... Uh, pull that out from, under the, out from under them, because that may be what they have left to help them uh, maintain their sanity or their stability. So, but the emphasis here is, of course, on meditation. Without meditation, real meditation, uh, that's what's distinctive about the Buddhist teaching. Otherwise, it is like every other religion. There are ethical principles and so forth, ceremonies, rituals, 
uh, holidays. I don't know when the holidays are. I get phone calls sometimes, people excited. Do you know that today was the day that the, something that the Buddha did? I don't have a clue. Um, but I do love the teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and here's what I can't seem to do. I'm not making it into a virtue. A major Buddhist magazine, when 9-11 happened, called, they wanted me to, as a Buddhist, what is your reaction to 9-11? It didn't take me very long, like about three seconds. I said, I, I can't answer that as a Buddhist. I can answer it as a person, which, of course, it's been influenced by the teachings of the Buddha and the practices that I've done. But I don't feel I can say, speaking as a Buddhist, I feel some people can and would be sincere and authentic. I can't. Uh, so if you're allowed to come here, if some other religion, can you allow me to have mine? <laughs> uh, in other words, I'm trying to... Uh, okay, now, so people who are against the war, against the bombing of Iraq, for example, uh, who were for it, uh, we, we, we try to make, because they felt very uncomfortable after that. There were notes and out, outspoken uh, uh, statements about how they should not be allowed to be members and not attend and all that. Um, that's exactly what we're trying to prevent. We want this to, be, this to be a sanctuary, a place where people can come and get to know themselves. Now, is there a monopoly on self-awareness, on self-knowledge? Is the breathing, is there a patent, a Buddhist patent on it? Uh, in fact, the whole point is the what we, at least what I feel here. What we try to emphasize is what's really universal, or one way of looking at a certain kind of lawfulness that affects all human beings. Now, for some people, a lot of cultural materials are helpful, and every time Buddhism has moved from one culture to another, it's picked it up. And for some people, it's helpful, and for others, it's where they wind up and they never. They never really go very deeply at all. Now, for me, it's, it, each person has, their own, has a choice. I know what we're trying to do here. We're trying to help people to really go as deeply as they can and to bring whatever they learn into, the, into their life and then alternate between contemplative life here and at retreat centers and just ordinary life. It, so it's, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, what, how you designate yourself or how you label yourself is your business as far as I'm concerned. Now, sometimes people will ask questions about, I'm, I'm Jewish and how to, does this, da-da-da-da. And so, often I'm, I might say, I can't answer that. I'm not competent. I don't know Judaism well enough anymore. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> I, had, I had years of Orthodox stuff. I guess it's only, I'm the only one who gets it. <laughs> Because I'm the only one who went through that. All right. Uh, so I hope that uh, clarifies things, that everyone's welcome. Uh, and my wife was very annoyed with me. I told her the story when I came home. And she said, just say you're a Buddhist, for goodness sakes. <laughs> you know, you can save all this conversation and back and forth and notes and all. Just say you're a Buddhist. It's, you know, and she's probably right. Uh, but she's not giving the talk. I am. <laughs> okay. Um, we left off last week, uh, some, uh, as, as I recall. Uh, what I was getting at is the, the, the importance of clear seeing. Uh, and I mentioned uh, that, for example, uh, 
the talk came out of my visit to a dentist where uh, the dentist showed these slides of my teeth. First, uh, he asked me, how has it been? It was a periodic checkup. And I said, everything's fine. I've been, uh, any discomfort during this, the last four or five months, whatever? I said, no, any pain? No, everything seems fine? Yep. He says, okay. Uh, he said, the teeth can't talk. And I thought, whoa, that's profound. <laughs> he didn't think so. I guess all dentists say that, but I thought it was. So then, but then he put these on and he looked at it and he could see certain things that I looked at it too. Of course I couldn't see it because I'm not skilled in that realm. Uh, but so that now there are powerful tools that are helping people to learn certain things to magnify, to maximize the ability to see clearly. Electronic telescopes, microscopes, uh, all kinds of uh, tests that can be done that enable us to see into the body and to discover things that perhaps we couldn't see before. We know also that somehow or another, the ancients, without any of this technology, did know a lot of this. And I think that may have come from a silent mind. When the mind gets very, very silent, it becomes very, very sensitive, and there's a form of intelligence that the human being has access to that is non-conceptual. I don't know. It's a speculation. But it is amazing uh, how much is known in acupuncture, in Ayurveda, uh, and people didn't have these instruments. Do, do some of these uh, technology help with that? It does. I've spoken to people, and they, they're happy that it, that it does. So what's, what do we use? How do we see? Uh, because insight meditation, vipassana, means clear seeing. It means seeing accurately because how we behave dep depends totally on how we see the world, starting with ourselves. How we see ourselves, or don't see ourselves, that's coloring how we see and act in the world. And so without clear seeing, uh, to me, Vipassana meditation would be like a car with no gasoline or no motor or something. It could be beautiful, but it's not going to take you anywhere. So there are so many other things that are helpful. So I wanted to talk about one approach using breathing tonight, but then the heat, maybe we can get back to it anyway, um, got me thinking, so I may not get to that at all. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm going to take a lot of liberties and paraphrase things. Um, there's a very old koan in the uh, Chinese Zen tradition, and it's, it's made its way through Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and so forth. Even now it's in the West. Um, a meditator goes to his teacher and says, um, how is one to meditate when it's very hot and when it's very cold? In other words, the person is overwhelmed by the heat and the cold. And the teacher says, there are a number of versions of this, and uh, those of you who are very scholarly, please don't hold me to, well, where does it say that? Because I don't remember. But, uh, so the teacher says, uh, kill hot, kill cold. What? I thought Buddhism is gentle, you know, nonviolent and all that. Uh, another reaction, another response to it is, when it's hot, the Buddha sweats. When it's cold, the Buddha shivers. Okay, what in the world is he talking about? Okay. Um, it actually gets, the reason, I think it's worth going into because we're beginning, the summer's beginning. Look, people were complaining about how cold it was. Now we're going to have to hear, uh, just my block, one little slice of, a tiny slice of reality. Uh, cold enough for you, now it's going to be hot enough for you. You know, the small talk that neighbors have to 
to survive each other's passing on the street <laughs> and to appear as if we're human and friendly and kind. <laughs> uh, well, we finally got it. It's the, the, the perfect day. Yeah, right, until the temperature changes a few degrees and then we'll be whining and complaining again. Uh, so I think this might be very practical with the summer coming upon us. I hope so. Um, and I'm going to try to link this to breath awareness. Um, what in the world does that mean? Kill hot, kill cold. Um, the kill is to kill the concept hot, the concept cold. Uh, if you make hot, you have hot. If you make cold, you have cold. Now, what it's getting at is there's, there's a, a, a truth. There is an act, let's say there's a certain temperature. Tonight is a perfect example. And see if you can go back, or maybe it's even at work right now. There's the fact that it's a certain temperature, certain humidity, a certain level of discomfort. That's factual. No one's saying that you're imagining it. On top of that, the mind makes up a story about it. It makes hot, okay, and whatever that means to you. So then, whatever the, liter the, the actual degrees may be, and I don't know what, the, let's say it's 98 or whatever, if the mind goes in there and gets going unexamined, it has complete license, it's shameless, and it could turn this into a sauna bath in you, for you internally. It isn't really, it's, it's just what it is. So kill hot kill cold is kill because the idea, if, I, if we can't separate the difference between bodily life, uh, and this is central in Vipassana meditation, and what the mind makes up about bodily life. So the Buddha talks about being, when he talks about being mindful of the body, kayanupasana, it, it, one translation, which is a bit awkward, the body in the body. I think a better one is the body in and of itself. That means the raw, naked sensations that bodies have before, uh, it's, it's not a concept, it's not an idea, it's just, whew. So, the second meaning is when it's hot, the Buddha sweats. When it's cold, the Buddha shivers. What else is he gonna do? I and mean, the Buddha's human, just like everyone else. He makes it clear he is. Now, maybe we turn him into something beyond that, but at least on the bodily level, there's no question that if, you, if it's hot, you sweat, and if it's cold, you shiver. So that means, literally, that's all you do. Okay. Uh, I was given this koan, and I don't know if any of you have worked in the, in the Korean and Japanese system. I wish I could get away with it here, but it wouldn't work here. Uh, you come in, and you're supposed to answer the koan. If you get it, great. Then the teacher says something nice, and you leave, and you feel really good. But most of the time, you don't get it like 99% of the time. And the teachers, this is the part I couldn't get away with in, in America, certainly. Just rings the bell, out. You know, <laughs> right? You, complaints, probably a lawsuit, something would go wrong. <laughs> so I was coming in for interviews again, and some of these retreats you have three or four interviews, and again and again uh, on this koan. And the bell was ringing. Finally, one day, and it was during the summer, I came in with a handkerchief. I just... Uh, dried my brow, I smiled and I bowed and I walked out. And the teacher said, perfect. <laughs> That's it. It's, in other words, it's not complicated. Uh, but it's pointing to uh, a kind of insight. One kind of insight, insight meditation, 
is insight into the difference between the mind and the body. The mind and body are closely interrelated. There's no question about that. That's obvious. But they're also distinguishable. And so what's happening to the body is what's happening to the body. But the mind uh, can make up whatever, whatever it wants to. The main story it makes up is that who is it that's hot? I am hot. Once it becomes personalized, big problem. Because you're the most important person in the entire universe, and you should be comfortable 100% of the time. <laughs> that would be nice, but is there any hope of that? If you found a way of accomplishing that, good for you. But bodies have a certain lawfulness. Another of my friends answered it correctly. He just came in, pulled out a, a, a thermometer, and said 98.8, and just bowed and walked out. And that was correct. In other words, it's just saying, literally, here's the fact. It's hot. It's cold. Period. Full stop. That's it. So there isn't extra suffering. There isn't torment. Which, when the mind, when we, when there's no insight into the difference between mind and body, we turn it into much more than it needs to be. So this summer, put it to a test. Now let me ask you. We were sitting. I was. I've had more comfortable sittings than this. Um, then it is what uh, the, the lesson of it, if we're learning how to live. That's what these talks is uh, supposed to be about, right? Uh, what's our relationship to temperature? Because learning how to live has everything to do with relationship. Relationship to nature, relationship to, to temperature, relationship to money, relationship to property, relationship to people, of course, relationship to your own mind, relationship to your emotions. It's, life is relationship in movement. And some of us learn, this is designed to give us the equipment to learn as we live. As we live out our life, some of us learn, and we make an enormous number of mistakes. If you're alive, you've made mistakes already. Some of them may be very serious, but a lot of them are not. Uh, the difference I've found between people is that some people are very motivated to learn from their mistakes, and some are not. Or some see the mistakes, and they just don't have the energy to correct them, or the will. So, um, how many of you... When we get to Q&A, maybe you can bring that discussion part. Maybe some, if, it, if, it, uh, if it happened that you saw what your mind was doing, maybe bring it up. I'd like to now um, go back to, so there's a little bit of continuity from last week. So if, uh, if people have electronic telescopes and microscopes uh, and all kinds of other equipment that amplifies our capacity to see clearly and accurately, and that that's an a asset, tremendous asset, in helping to understand the, the lawfulness of life. One of the meanings of Dharma is the natural law. I don't know if you know that, but it is. It's natural law. It's the way things are. Okay. And the lawfulness in nature is... This, we're part of nature in this uh, approach to living. It's not that nature's out there and we're somehow here. Uh, for example, a central insight is insight into, the imper into impermanence. Everything that appears, every everything that emerges will disappear. Everything. That's true whether you look at mountains or rivers or whole c uh, countries or you look at your own mind or your own body. It's a law. It's just lawful. It's not particularly Buddhist. The Buddha used it uh, as an aid to getting free by seeing an ob everyone knew that everything's impermanent. That's well, how could you not know that? I think the Buddha's gift, this is my, as best I can understand it, his unique contribution is he then, first of all, 
and this has been in yoga for a long time, thousands of years before the Buddha, uh, ways of seeing clearly, uh, yogic methods for seeing clearly, and especially inner seeing. But the Buddha used those methods and developed some other ones uh, to turn it around and see the law of impermanence at work in our own mind and in our own body, not just sort of poetically, philosophically, historically, and so forth, but for you to actually see this law at work. Uh, a notion comes up about yourself, and then it's gone. And then a, another notion comes up about yourself. It tells you who you are, and then it's gone, and they're contradictory. Well, which one, where, which one are you? And then other things come up, and things keep coming and going. Um, and as you pay attention, you'll see that um, this notion of a me, M-E, of a self, of I consciousness, the letter I, uh, covers a fiction. It's an illusion. Because what you see is a process that, if unexamined, seems like it's something solid and enduring, to which everything is happening. In other words, there's me and everything's happening to me. But as you start to examine me, you'll see that me is a process, and it's part of the whole process. And yet there's something deeper that knows it. There's some, the, this awareness stuff, it's very mysterious and beautiful to me. Uh, because there's something that sees all this and is capable of learning from it. So one of the reasons that impermanence is emphasized, the main reason as far as I can tell, is so that we can attune how we live to the reality of the way things are. If things are constantly arising and passing away and we're living with various fixations, uh, it's a bumpy ride because it's a head-on collision between you and some law of life. It's not going to work. Who do you think is going to win? I put my money on life. The law just, it's impersonal. You know, it's just life keeps insisting on being the way it is. A lot of surprises. It's not only impersonal, uh, impermanent, but it's uncertain. We never know what's going to happen and when. That's just true. I don't think it's particularly Buddhist or anything else. Everyone recognizes it. So underlying this is uh, seeing the importance uh, in terms of, a, of wisdom, of understanding the world as it is so that the way you live can be realistic, can be sensitive, pliable, flexible, appropriate, skillful, words like that wise, compassionate. Otherwise, we're living in a world that really is, doesn't exist. And we insist on living a certain way, and it's not working. Okay. So, um, we left off, I think, uh, where's my tormentor? There he is. I did talk about something like this, didn't I? A little bit? Okay. Uh, this is the Buddha, he's disguised as a child. <laughs> okay. um, so, how do we develop this ability to see? It, it, for the moment, entertain the possibility. Since the Buddha's talking about liberation, in other words, human liberation. That is, there's outer liberation, where human beings enslave one another, that has existed, and people understand that very well, and we're more and more putting an end to that, or trying to at any rate. What's less understood is inner slavery. That is, you can be outwardly free and inwardly enslaved. Enslaved to your own thought patterns, your own emotional fixations, your own conditionings that uh, repeat themselves over and over and over again in ways that are 
are, are not skillful in Buddhist language. That is, they produce suffering. And from a point of view of wisdom, if we could only see that clearly and unlearn it, then the suffering goes away. It's like seeing a disease and seeing what causes it. And the root is the cause. If we can take care of the cause, then the disease is not a problem. Uh, so that's if, so one of the reasons for seeing impermanence. Now, let's say all of you agree that everything is impermanent. Fine. That in itself is just the beginnings. You might say it's obvious, and maybe you agree with everything I just said. Maybe, hmm, I never thought about that. It's, uh, even internally, everything is changing. It's not just mountains and oceans and all. Uh, my mind is changing all the time. I, I've already had five or six hundred different attitudes all day long. Should I come to see him? I said, no, it's too hot. Yeah, but maybe I'm going to... Oh, but, it's not, but then if, if I go there, it's that party. is. I don't want to go there. It's just they're going to just talk about the good old day. No, I think I'll go to CIMC. Maybe I'll meet someone there. <laughs> no, it's always quiet. How can you meet anyone there? Okay. So the mind has been at work all day long. Then we get here, and on top of that, it's hot. But notice now it's not as hot, is it? Is it more, a little more pleasant? I guess things change. Uh, do you feel a little bit better? Right. Now what happens if the air conditioning breaks down again? Then we're going to start in with the moaning and the whining and, and we have to put you to work again and you miss all these incredibly profound thoughts because you're trying to fix the air conditioning. That's not what you came here for. Okay. Um, so Learning how, uh, it, as you start to pay attention, for example, just to see an, an in-breath arise and pass away, an out-breath arise and pass away, just to see sensations in the body arise and pass away, arise and pass away, just to see certain moods, let's say fear, certain emotional states. When the fear comes, it's as if it's, it's solid, it's powerful. We feel overwhelmed. It feels as if it's going to be there forever and it's, uh, we're helpless It'll never go away, but it's not true. If the awareness, the ability to see clearly and accurately is stable and can stay with it, what it sees is that what we call fear is an energy, a form of energy, not the word F-E-A-R, and that energy operates, comes from somewhere down in consciousness, operates, and then it starts to thin out and fade away, and suddenly it's gone, and then there's a relief, and then we feel good. And then the relief is broken by some other mood, which may make us feel not so good or make us feel good. So, but as we start to, let's just limit it to fear. If you see the uh, impermanent nature of fear, which in Buddhist language is quite related to seeing its emptiness. Sometimes people get very confused by hearing everything's impermanent and empty. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but it's an empty of inherent existence. It exists. It's there. It's there in that moment. But we impute a solidity to it that it doesn't have. And we absorb it as me. This is my fear. This is happening to me. Once you make this is happening to me, big trouble. But if we can see it as nature, uh, fear is just like a thunderstorm. It comes, lightning, a lot of sound, and then it starts to fade away, and then it's gone, and then there's something else, and then there's something else, and then there's something else. If we see fear and start to see its, that its nature is impermanent and empty, in the sense that I just hinted at, um, our relationship to it changes. 
it's no longer, it no longer has as much authority over us, as much power over us. It's sort of like, oh, here comes fear. I know you've been around a lot of times. But now we're not, uh, it's okay. In other words, fear, all human beings have fear. And we realize here comes fear. And that's a mind state. That's all it knows how to do is to be frightened. It has no sense of humor. It has, it has no political view. It may have a political view. But it just knows fear. Oh, 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 oh. And then it's gone. And then a lot of doubting, doubting, people, doubting is very big in Cambridge because as you get more educated, you start becoming more skeptical and you see through everything. You know, ah, that's nonsense. Ah, that's nonsense. That's bullshit. That's, that's baloney. You know, like, and, okay, uh, as you start to, and then we get, and then you start doubting yourself. I can't do this meditation stuff. How did they do it uh, thousands of years ago? I don't understand. How do they do it now? I can't even find my nostrils, let, let alone follow the breath. Uh, and you start doing that, and uh, then you get discouraged, and you make I can't do it. So if you, if you make I can't do it, you have. I can't do it. You're out the door, and, we, and that's the end of it. But if you start to see that these doubts, are, they're just mind states. They come and they go. They come and they go. And you watch it. And that's why I like to say, enjoy the show. At first, you're not going to enjoy the show. Because you've had, as, as long as you've been alive, you have believed in all these things and given tremendous energy and authority to them over you. And now we're just saying, you know, they're not quite what you thought they were. Pay attention and you'll see it is there. It's not like it's a, a hallucination, but it's not there in quite the way in which you think it is. And if you pay attention, you'll see that. Oh, okay. Now, as you do that more and more, the understanding uh, of the impermanent nature of, let's say, fear, because we're staying with that for the moment, that goes deeper and deeper and deeper until it becomes bone deep. Then you really get that everything is changing, and it becomes a lot easier to live. It's not simply a, a, a concept. It's not agreeing with it. That's absolutely true. That's profound. That's deep. I understand everything is impermanent, uncertain. Great. What's the next teaching? If you only got this one teaching, but really got it, at a, it as it becomes more interior, and it, it, it deeper and deeper, then it isn't something out here that has some truth. It's about truth. But you actually see it in yourself. You see it wherever you look. And you're more able to live... Uh, gracefully in the world as it is rather than as you, you think it is. So that's called wisdom. And that means a lot of suffering is unnecessary now. Or it's either the fear may come along and there may be a little bit of, it's not that, oh, I'm so happy fear is here. But it, no, it starts to lose its potency as you learn how to observe it. So how to see is central. How to see is central. Um, I don't know about the new people, but most, the people who come here, most Buddhist schools, in all the schools, do use the breath to develop awareness in some form or another. Uh, personally, I like to emphasize, and I think I, it's taking it directly, literally, from the Buddhist teaching, being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes in, being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes out. I take it literally. That's the, everyone agrees on a translation, but then seem to give it very different meanings. That means as you're sitting, you're aware of the body and you feel the breath as the, the rhythm of breathing, as it enters and leaves, enters and leaves. And as at first, you won't be able to stay with it much. Your mind will get caught up in what you've been practicing for as long as you've been alive, which is worrying, planning, scheming, uh, imagining, remembering, 
whatever minds do. We've done it a lot. So they're strong. And breath, breath is not, how, you know, what's the big deal about breath? It's, it's kind of boring. It's colorless. You know, at least like torment. That's great. You know, it's like <laughs> there's some drama in it, you know, or self-pity. At least I'm a star in that one. You know, uh, but in our in respiration, there's actually an ancient Indian teaching story where all the senses come together and they're arguing over who's most important. And uh, so sight starts off, says, obviously I'm most important. And they say, no, you're not. And then so sight shuts down. And everyone realizes, oh, we can't see. But then hearing says, yeah, but I can hear. And then smell says, but I can smell, and so forth. And then sight comes back. Then hearing shuts down. And you say, oh, my goodness, I can't hear. Yeah, but I can see. I can talk. And they go through all the senses like this. And poor breath is sort of like unassuming and shy in the background. And it says, what about me? And he says, oh, come on, get out of here, breath. There's nothing, you know. So all the senses are, are they're at each other, trying to decide who's most important. And then breath says, okay, I'm going to shut down. And then suddenly... Everyone starts to, all of them start to collapse and fall apart. Please come back. Please come, because we can't do what we do unless you come back. We need you. Okay, I'll come back. So don't underestimate the breath, because if you do, you're underestimating being alive. All of us right now are breathing. Did you know that? Another way of putting that is, did you know that you're alive right now? I know the heat may mitigate that profound perception. But each one of us is alive. And if you do a lot of breath awareness in out, even that can become deadening. It can become mechanical. In, out, in, out, in, out. And you get a little calm. That's nice. You know. um, so you have to keep the mo- we're learning how to keep the mind fresh. As you do more and more of breath awareness, a number of things happen. First of all, in this approach, we allow the breath to assume whatever qualities it does. Because we're not controlling it. We're not directing it. So already we're beginning to learn a skill. The art of non-intervention, of not trying to fix anything, of not trying to change anything, lengthen it, shorten it, uh, make it better, uh, make it lead to something really valuable. Can we learn to leave things alone, at least sometimes, and just uh, develop pure observation? Just watch respiration as it goes to work, as we experience the breath happening. And, of course, we're pulled away again and again. If you you don't give up, little by little, like any other skill, everyone in this room can can learn it. You learn it if you stick with it. Uh, And as you learn how to do it and you become more absorbed in the breathing, it turns out that not just in that story, but in your story, you'll find out that the breath is far more interesting than you ever thought it was. Because it brings with it, the breath is in a unique place. It conditions the mind and it conditions the body. Now, the yogis all knew that, and they, it probably, but they've used a lot of breathing where you control the breath. You uh, hold it, different ratios, and so forth. That's very useful practice, too. But here, the emphasis is on, observ- on awareness, mindfulness, whatever language you like. So, as you, we learn how to allow, the art of allowing, um, there's another benefit that comes with it. Some of you who've been doing this for years, you might say, oh, I've heard this, if, you've, if that's happening, see if you can listen in a fresh way. Because um, when we learn how to allow the breath 
to just assume its own nature, rather than in some approaches people try to fix the breath. If it's unpleasant, make it pleasant. There are ways of, of modifying it. So, because if it is pleasant, it'll be easier to, to be aware of, of course. But in this approach, uh, which I personally favor, I'm not saying it is the way, it is a way, it's the way that I favor, and I'm not alone here, there's value in the breath assuming all these different qualities. Sometimes the breath is quite a delight. It's flowing freely. It enters and exits freely. At other times, it's painful to be breathing, the, whether it's due to a cold or whatever the reason. Uh, it, it fights its way in and out. Sometimes it's very smooth, like silk. At other times, it's very coarse and rough. It can be deep. It can be shallow. Uh, it can... Uh, when it starts, to, when you get uh, sensitive to the breathing, you feel it touching parts of the body. Sometimes even pushing against an organ and helping you feel a tenderness that the that the organ had, and the breath helps you feel that. So as we get, as we get to to do that, what is happening? Since the emphasis here is not on breath therapy or pranayama, those of you who know yoga. Uh, but it is a form, but there are health benefits that come from it. It's just that we don't emphasize it because then everyone prefers to have a healthy body. Wisdom, that's great. You do it. I just want to live forever. I want to have a nice butt and nice thighs <laughs> and so I can fit into those nice leotards that I just bought and that I don't fit into yet, but I will soon. And this is about wisdom and compassion. Who cares about wisdom and compassion? If I could levitate, this place, would, we would outgrow it. We'd have to buy a stadium. Supposing you came here and I said, here is some of the fruit of Vipassana meditation. And I started to raise up. <laughs> Next week, or Saturday, when I lead the retreat, people would be fighting to get in here, storming. You know, the people would get killed in the mad rush. You know, because we think that that's something fantastic. As you know, I can't do it. But if someone is kind and wise, and this practice enhances that, it's not that commercially viable. You know, yeah, he's a nice guy. Okay, what else? You know, um, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, now, if you don't see the beauty of wisdom, you won't last on this practice. So the first aspect of training, something's called shamatha, we use the breath as an exclusive object of attention. It's not an object, really, it's a process. And we come back to the breath again and again. As we improve our ability to be with the breath, also what's happening is we're not feeding the, all the different mind states that the mind goes through in a typical day, which is an enormous squandering of energy, which we may not realize. That is, all day long, if you don't know your mind because we're so busy doing things, the mind is endlessly dipping into the past, reliving it, making up the future, horrible future, wonderful future, speculating about this, hoping about that, aspiring that, putting this person down, putting that one up, looking forward to dinner, looking forward to the summer vacation, being averse to this. Uh, and much of it is to no avail. It's not that it's useful. Repeating itself over and over, deep trenches in the brain from the same repeated ideas since childhood, again and again. I want people to love me. They don't love me. I want people to love me. They don't love. Okay, as you start to just uh, enter that rhythm of the breathing, and, and we're not into wisdom per se yet, but of course <clears throat> wisdom comes with it anyway. As we enter into that, as more and more the energy goes into just simply sitting and breathing in addition to a certain peace that comes and a joy, it does, it's lawful. It's, I'm not calling it anything mystical or anything like that. It's lawful, it happens. One of the main reasons it happens is 
as we become absorbed in this, we're withdrawing energy from all these different unexamined mind states that plague us throughout the day. And one of the things you start to see is how much energy is squandered by unexamined, the mind being unexamined. Start paying attention to your mind. If you keep doing Vipassana, uh, that's a central part of Vipassana, is seeing directly into the mind. Chitanupassana. In other words, you can. You can learn just as you can learn to be aware of the breath. You can learn to become aware of thoughts, of emotions, of moods, of silence, anything. They're just more subtle, more difficult. So some of the uh, hindrances, some of the afflictions, they start losing their potency simply because we're not watering those plants. Instead, we're watering being calm and peaceful. And once you start to really taste it, then you don't need sideshow barkers like me to tell you about it because you know for yourself that it's a valuable human activity. Okay, so that's shamatha. I have about three minutes for wisdom, but uh, (laughs) probably we're not interested in it anyway, so it's good enough. No, I take that back. Excuse me. That was bad. It's the heat. Um, These days what I hear is when people are off, it's the heat, or I have a chemical imbalance, uh, or what's the other one? Uh, what? What? It's menopause. the uh, menopause. Okay, but you know, but that one may be true. But you know, uh, it's uh, it's a side effect of my pharmaceutical. You mean the fact that you just killed seventeen people, you who you didn't even know? Yeah, it wasn't me. It was like it's a there's this drug that I take for high blood pressure. It has these side effects. You might become a serial killer. So check with your physician. Okay. Uh, so I don't want to blame the heat. Um, where am I? <laughs> Wisdom. Good. It's in short supply. Okay. So that now, let's say the mind as, uh, as, a, as an instrument for the moment, let's say comparable to a, micro, a, a, a microscope, a telescope, uh, and all the uh, magnificent technology that can see into the body now, and uh, can examine gums and teeth and be tremendously helpful to a dentist and so forth, sometimes saving lives. Um, So we're developing, it's an an odd process because we're the observer, we're also what's being observed. Uh, It's a totally inside job. In other words, the same mind is developing the ability to see itself by using, let's say in this case, one method. There are others. I'm just using one. Breathing. In, out, in, out. And as that starts to develop, you'll find, as many of you I know have, that the mind is much more clear. It's much more settled. It's much more stable. It's much more fit to now look at when we enter into work, family life, uh, student life. Um, what, what's your life like? Are you, you're a student still, right? You're, yeah. you're not in medical school yet, are you? No. Okay. <laughs> not quite yet. Okay. Uh, whatever your life is, it's once once people enter the scene, big problem, right? No, just me. Okay. Uh, but so the challenge becomes not simply going on one retreat after another and running to CIMC and get a fix of awareness and feel good, but by all means sit every day. By all means go to retreats, come here. But it's just to develop the ability to then bring it into what's really. Look, learning how to sit and be aware of the things I just mentioned, that has its own challenges. You know it's not a piece of cake. But also what we're learning is how to bring, if you stay with it, the mind does become more clear. It becomes more stable. We're not thrown so much. 
In fact, you can use the breath as a good friend since it's always happening. It's kind of it's portable. And if you feel yourself getting all excited and, and that your decision or what you say could be dangerous, all you have to do is feel a breath or two and usually it calms you down. And then you have a better chance of saying something that is more, that is more um, skillful, more useful. Okay, so the challenge now becomes taking that quality of clear mind that's more able to see accurately and applying it to living, every aspect of living. And that includes our inner life. That is, as we've spent a lot of time outwardly, we know a lot about externals. We don't know as much about ourselves. And so uh, the encouragement here is for awareness to not to neglect the outer world. In fact, at a certain point, there's no outer or inner. But to begin with, <clears throat> it's convenient to speak that way. So the awareness is in the service. The breath awareness is in the service of clear seeing which enables us to see accurately so that uh, we're able to see how the mind works and let go of what needs to be let go of and to allow to, to exist what, what is useful. Um, and as you develop it, it's astonishing the degree to which the mind can become more clear. The, re the real clarity starts to, starts to come upon us, and again, this is lawful. It's not reserved for special people is when the mind starts to enter into stillness, inner stillness. Um, you can, outer stillness is relatively easy to get. Just go to the country or whatever it is. Um, when everyone goes to sleep at night, you just relax and you get on the porch and you hear the whatever and you look at it and you can feel relaxed. Uh, we hope we, within the within uh, Central Square area, we've put a fence around it, a nice garden, we try to make this place. So when you walk in here, it can begin to help us relax outwardly a bit. But the real, uh, the real stillness has, has, is inward. When the mind becomes still inwardly, and not just from concentration under special conditions, which means it's limited, but as it becomes more stable and a part of your life, then the seeing becomes astonishingly, astonishingly more clear and re, a, a kind of learning, not knowledge. That's also valuable learning. This is non-conceptual learning. A kind of knowledge is available to us that was not available when we were trying to think our way through everything. In other words, so stillness is crucial. We get to stillness in this practice, not by trying to get to it, but by seeing all the obstacles to it as we watch fear come and go, loneliness come and go. Uh, we, we're for something. We're against something. Just it, when I say enjoy the show, it can get to be that way. It's great fun. You just watch the mind just the way you'd watch anything else. And as you do that, the mind starts emptying itself of its own content, and you find that there's stillness. And this stillness merely has infinite space and depth. There's no end to it. Okay. I think it's where astrophysics is now. I spoke to one such person. It's one of the nice things about my work. Of course, they're as screwed up as we are, but not when they look at the heavens. Okay. This person is suffering a lot, but not when he's behind his telescope. Okay. And he was telling me that astrophysicists are coming upon space and emptiness. And when he started to describe it, it says, like, if you didn't say that it was about the cosmos, but said it was about the mind, it would fit what, I, what little I know of it. And as the mind, the real healing starts to happen. Other healings happen along the way. You don't have to wait, you don't have to, wait to be perfect. 
Right now, you can do things that are beneficial, even if you just walked in. But I'm just saying, uh, we're developing ourselves, and as the mind becomes more clear, it's more able to learn. Clear has everything to do with stillness, because if you're seeing through a cluttered mind, a mind that's preoccupied with becoming this and getting away from that and worrying about this, it's not really seeing clearly. As that starts to recede, go into abeyance, suddenly it's the same world. And the stillness has always been there. We're not growing it. We're not importing it from Asia. It's here. If you're human, you have it. And it's just obscured by our preoccupation with the surface of the mind. The scroll, you know, that's on... You know how you, when you watch the... I was just watching the news, wanting to find out about Syria. And they had up in the right hand, just before coming here, uh, some uh, general talking, some Syrian general talking. And, and there was, he was explaining uh, how uh, they're fine. And uh, there was a translation. Then over here is uh, showing people uh, dying and dead on the floor. And then this scroll about uh, some trial going on, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in the world. And then uh, the suicide rate in Japan. And I'm looking over here, looking, and then there's an announcer. And then and suddenly this became not so interesting, and I got caught up in the scroll. And then they interrupt it, and then an advertisement comes on. And, I, you know, wait a minute, I want the scroll. But then, then it comes back, it picks up where it left off, you get back, but then the picture is more interesting. So we have all these ways of uh, attention deficit disorder. That's normal. Why are they making it a diagnostic category? <laughs> Meditation exists because the human race has attention deficit disorder. Okay, those of you who want to leave, fine. Those of you who want to stay, it won't be rude if you get up at any time and leave. I understand you have other commitments, but let's, uh, let's get, get started. Well, so if you have to leave, please leave now. But let's, um, do we pass the microphone around? Okay, what can we talk over together? I'm open. Any, anyone have any reflections on their experience of the temperature uh, while b before the talk or but it, it, any question yes please so, you're gonna have to speak up until you get the mic oh let's guess it's, it's okay it's an imperfect world go ahead Lots of emotional ups and downs? Uh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, so like fear and doubt. And, and um, most of the time that I've been working towards my PhD, I felt kind of like um, a lot of doubt that this is what I should be doing. You mean whether you should be working on this degree? Right, right. Um, and so I've come to, but I'm also, I have a lot of fear to quit doing the PhD also. So I've come to this state where I kind of just watch, okay, today I'm afraid, and um, what am I going to do about it? And so, okay, I'm afraid of this, so I'm going to ask this person, like, I'm afraid that I don't know how to do this reaction, so I'm going to ask this person to help me. So I'm trying to, like, constructively, like, deal with each of these emotions that come. Um, but some of the other people in my program, a lot of them have dropped out. <coughs> and so I, I was wondering while you were talking, like, for some people, these emotions or something is going on inside their head that's constructive that helps them make a decision, like, I'm going to stop this PhD, I'm going to go to something else. And so at what point 
in this reflection and and seeking clarity, is there a place where you can make a decision? But you see, it's I understand. Yeah, it's not about them. It's about you. Forget about those who seem to know what they're doing. Maybe they do, and maybe they don't. I've been, you know, I've been there, done this, and got the T-shirt. In other words, I've been through graduate school, and I was even a teacher, and I had to guide people through it. I know, I know the emotional trauma that comes along with it. And most people don't finish. At least at the university I got my PhD from, most people don't finish. Um, and the ones who finished. I'm not necessarily the smartest. They're the ones who, you know, you get hit in the face with one pie, you wipe it off, and then another one. They're sort of like the ones who just keep going. And the, some of the more intelligent ones are too sensitive for this process. It's a brutal process sometimes. Okay. Out of it sometimes comes something good, and sometimes it just means you can, you're a survivor and you're very ambitious. Extremely ambitious. Okay. It seems to me, just based on what you said, is first of all, you're still using the old mind a lot. You, I assume you want me to say what meditation can do to help you. Because otherwise, there's no point to the question. Because you're just going to do it how you've been doing it all your life. First of all, first off, the key question is that you have doubt about being in the program to begin with. That, if you don't take care of that, that's the root of everything. So, for example, supposing that doubt is clarified and you realize you do want to be in this program. That gives you tremendous strength through the ups and downs. There have to be the ups and downs. Uh, you'll bring certain things into your advisor, and they'll say, rewrite this, it's no good. You'll feel disappointed, or you won't feel like working, or you want to. Okay. But if you know if you're at one with the purpose, then now if you're still not sure about the purpose, you're on shaky turf. And everything else that's happening, it's all, uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Now, I'm not saying become obsessed with that, but when, uh, let's say you're sitting, okay, should that doubt come up? Let's say, I don't know, should I be here, shouldn't I? Uh, throw the word doubt out, not the word, it's, that, it's a state, a, qu a state of consciousness which is doubtful. It doesn't know, should I, should I shouldn't I, conflict, okay? And... Don't try to get a solution. Don't try to figure out whether you should stay or not stay. Let the doubt, and I don't mean the words, the energy, let it tell its story. Now, here's the thing with self-knowing, self-understanding, self-knowledge, whatever language you like. As the mind gets clearer, what it shows you is the truth. Now, the truth may say, you really don't want to do this. And then suddenly you get frightened. If I don't do this, then what else will I do? How will I earn a living? I'll be unemployed. No one's getting a job anyway. But Social Security will go out. There'll be no, so there'll be no Medicare. I want, you know, like I'll be out on the street. Can you spare some change? You know? <laughs> okay. You, you, right? Yeah. Okay. So often we know we, wisdom is, is transparent. We see what we should do or shouldn't do, but we don't live it. So let's say, let's say, I'm not saying this is true for you because I have no, the only one who's going to find out is you, okay? So you look and suddenly this doubt looms rather big and you stay with it. And at that moment, it's pretty convincing that this isn't for you. And then it follows immediately by terror, okay? And terror begets all these scenarios about, okay. Um, if you can look at that, 
what awareness does, real awareness, it just shows you the truth. Now, if the truth, if, if it keeps coming up and you keep seeing it, you'll start to feel it. You'll start to say, I really don't want to do this. And then, the, the, so you, let's say it, you're convinced that, okay, it's obvious what I should do. I should just drop out. And you know that that's the right thing to do. No conflict over it. Um, but you don't live it then. So it's a kind of, we betray our understanding. Like sometimes the understanding is very, very clear. This is not for me. And it may take a long time before we can admit. See, uh, sometimes couples will come and they want the, uh, the meditation. I'm not a couples counselor or marriage. To, I, I'm just saying, look, the practice can help you see the truth. Sometimes it may lead to you realizing that with the, the, the best thing to do is to go separate ways. And sometimes you find ways of saving the relationship. Uh, uh, are you prepared to, to go that deeply into it? So self-knowledge uh, it takes a certain amount of humility and courage. So let's say you, you, you know what to do. I'm, I'm making this up. I'm not psychic or etc. Honest. You see that you really should drop out of this program, and then, uh, but you can't do it. You feel frozen for the reasons that we, I'm speculating about. Okay, you can't do it. So then you start, then as an, a, an investigation is appropriate. Investigation, sometimes it's like pulling over to the side of the road and looking, observing carefully. It's still in silence. It may be a bit of thought at the beginning, later on less and less thought, till there's no thought at all. It's seeing why is it that I don't live my understanding. And then fear comes up. And then you shift to fear. You don't, you, don't, you don't stay with the decision. And you see what the fear, and you just move with it and uh, so it's not that you're, you're a bad person because you don't live your wisdom. You betrayed your understanding. Whereas wisdom is not just memorizing wise words. The Buddha said, Socrates said, that's, you know, that, that's menu. That's the menu. It's not a meal. You can't live. Wisdom works or it's not wisdom. It's practical. It's, it's real. And it's lived. That's so that real wisdom is something you live. It's not something you argue over and uh, have disputes, and that's just language. Okay, so that um, when when if you can really, uh, let's say you see you're not living your wisdom, and the whole point of this practice is to help you live the truth, and the truth is at many levels. Some of it is exactly what you're talking about. There's a lot of suffering going. Look, getting a PhD is hard enough without this, isn't it? Okay, add on to it that you're not even sure you want to be there. Whew. Um, I'll tell you, I, I'm sympathetic. I went to law school before I got a PhD. And I knew the first day that it wasn't for me. I really, this is not to put down law, I just knew it wasn't for me. I didn't know what to do with my life, but I kept going a year and a half. Then there was one day, I'm sitting in this big hall, and the professor's giving a talk. I even remember the book, Prosser on Bills and Notes. And it was an issue of a Swiss bank and a New York bank and the assignee and the assignor. And finally, I was able to live my understanding. I got up. I put the book down. Maybe someone else can have it. I walked out. And this is at the University of Chicago. And I went across the street to the Oriental Institute. And I just saw antiquities and, you know, great art from, from Asia and all that. <sighs> and now what? Okay, but I knew that that wasn't for me. But it took me a year and a half to, uh, to, so that I, I, because I was afraid, obviously. 
uh, afraid and well then then what I don't know what to do that's what got me into made the wrong decision in the first place uh, when I was a, I was also a professor for 10 years and senior year people would go crazy you you know in the, in the undergraduates many not everyone and, and many would come to office hours and they would say I don't know what to do but my parents have if I go to medical school they'll give me a car and you know they're, they're, this is this is Brandeis University all right <laughs> Uh, if I drop out, I'll be homeless, you know, whatever it is. And they'd be worrying. Somehow, by the end of the senior year, n more than 90%, oh, yeah, they'd come in and say, everything work out? Yep. What is it? I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a social worker. Everything's fine. Oh, good. A very small number could say, I really don't know what to do and just take a backpack and go through Europe or wherever and just live that way and, and if to see if something would come their way and, and to be patient so that most people finally settle on something that's practically necessary to earn a living. I'm not, I'm not being on Mount, Mount Olympus. We do have to earn a living. And maybe that is for you and it's not perfect. But what is? You know, do you think I love to hear everything that you ask? You think I just love all your questions? You, th you think I do? You know, I don't. You, th you think a doctor loves every patient that walks in? They still have to do the surgery. And they, do, you know, a, good, a real doctor does it. Somehow they're... So you don't, at this point, it may be that the ups and downs are getting you to doubt, but that overall it may be that you're in the right place. It's just that it's not somehow not perfect or for whatever reason. But... You have to find that out by paying attention and especially that interaction between truth and fear. Fear is one of the reasons it's so important to come to know fear because fear limits our potential. We humans, we're so limited by fear, often we don't understand how much we don't do because of fear, how many doors we shut on ourselves. Now, if you conclude, as some people do, I'll give you, an, this is an example. This person, this is actually true, I mean, I don't remember ex all the details. This person uh, didn't have a good use of English. They had just come to this country. They hadn't even, they had just graduated high school here. Uh, and they were much older. They had four children, a wife and four children. And we would have interviews. They'd come, you know, come to the center. And the person wanted to be a doctor. They were in their late 30s. They had three or four children. He would have to go to college first. Then he would have to get into medical school. Then he would have to get, uh, become a, you know, an intern and a resident and, then, and so forth, years before. And so we talked about it. At a certain point, I realized, uh, can you see that you're not going to be a doctor? And the person said, I've known that for a while. I said, so why are we hammering away here? You're not going to be a doctor. And he said, Oh, thank you. I'm not, am I? I said, it's obvious you're not going to be a doctor. Are you going to be a doctor? No. Okay. I know you would love to be. So sometimes we don't, it, life is that way. We don't get everything we want. It's just so obvious. No one does. Okay, so now you have to come to terms with what's next. Maybe you get other training in the medical field or you've, but so honest, I would say a lot of what our practice is training in honesty. The honesty is with ourselves. And is that easy? I, very often it's not. It, it is frightening because we have a lot of myths and illusions and self-deception is very potent in humans. 
And the reason it's called self-deception, because if we knew we were doing it, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be deceiving ourselves. We really think that we're being clear. So for a year and a half, I suffered through law school. I could have walked out the first day. I knew it wasn't for me. So I don't know what you should do. So I guess I didn't help at all, but so. <laughs> Anyone else? Please. Hi. Sure. It's, yeah. But why set it up? Why, in other words, you don't want to sit? Well, first, I, I'm, having a, I'm having a hard time sitting. I'm, I'm new to meditation. Everyone does. I don't know anyone, uh, including uh, the eminent, famous speaker. <laughs> Look, um, there's a, a very a beautiful, it's put very beautifully in a Tibetan text. They have, they've mapped certain stages of, a, of uh, how the mind develops. Every tradition has different ways of mapping it. Uh, and the first attainment, this is something, an achievement. Like he, here we'd probably give a diploma of some kind, you know, certificate. Okay. The first attainment is attaining the cascading mind. Cascading like a waterfall. Well, what kind of attainment is that? In other words, you see that your mind is wild. Does that matter, right? Okay. Every, I haven't met anyone, I've been doing this for a while, whose mind doesn't start that way. So, but why do they call it an attainment? Because you're, the first step is you see your predicament. You didn't get infected because you walked into CIMC, your mind was you know, clear as blue sky, and then you walk into this place and a virus affects you and now it's, you're all over the place. <laughs> you brought it in here with you. It's not my fault, it's not his fault. Oh, he's a statue, all right. <laughs> So, uh, now, at that point, let's say they call it an attainment because you're seeing it. Most human beings do not see it. They really think that their mind is okay. Now, when you see it, yes, it can be frightening, discouraging, and words like that. And then it's a fork in the road. You have a choice. Get discouraged. Want a shortcut? I don't, and it's not just about breath. You, you can use other means. That's just one method. Uh, or understand that this is where I'm starting, but there's help. People have faced this for thousands of years. One of the things that helped me is in reading ancient texts, which I like to do. I saw that people would, they would just sounded just like you. And when I read it, I felt, oh, it's just a human thing. To begin with, the mind is wild. Some people's minds are more wild than others, but I haven't met anyone yet. I've listened to really a few thousand minds, honestly. I haven't met anyone, any beginner, who has not started with the mind being wild. So, you may, maybe you won't sit as much as uh, the person next to you. Maybe the breath is not the appropriate object. It's not about the breath, finally. It's about awareness. And for some people, the breath is a wonderful way to develop the awareness. And for others, it isn't. But um, can you develop awareness in daily life? Absolutely. But then you have to set that as, you, as a, it's a, mainly it's an attitudinal change where you understand the importance of paying attention to how you actually live. Underline actually. How you actually live. Not how we think we live. Images of ourselves, how our mommy told us to live, how a rabbi or a priest or a mullah or whoever told you how to live. How do you, and from moment to moment, as you start paying attention, you're developing steadiness and calm. But don't, don't just drop the sitting. Make the sittings a little sh more brief, maybe just five or ten minutes. Be patient. Let it grow slowly. Uh, if you get one clear breath, good enough. Maybe the next day there'll be two breaths. 
It's okay. Uh, but understand, it's not finally about the breath at all. It's about awareness. And every human being has the, is already aware. Every, we already have that. It's just developing that capacity uh, to a refinement that is beyond what we can conceive of right now. So um, I vote that, in other words, the cavalry is coming. Don't, don't take the fork in the road that gets discouraged. Help is, it's not on the way, it's here. The methods, techniques, one of the virtues of a community is that, does anyone here, how many, show of hands, how many people understand what this gentleman is talking about? <laughs> so at least you don't feel lonely. In other words, it's, it's a human, that's the way the mind starts. It, you don't have to turn it into a problem and judge yourself. So I would keep going. Give the breath a chance, but it may not be the breath. Maybe some other, there are other methods. And you Just give an example. Like today, I was in the line at the supermarket. And for some reason, I'm focusing on my feet, on the, on the ground. It centers me. Right. Like the breath does. So, okay. And you talk about it particularly. I get to the point where I think that I'm as, as aware as I can be. You know what I mean? I can't get any more aware, and then I just drift off, and I totally forget it because I get bored with it. I just think that this is it. Okay. I can't, I can't do any more work, do any more awareness. So, but then it's the same thing as with the breath. Don't you say it's, it's you've had a different object, but this is first of all. Everyone's practice is: we fall asleep, we wake up. We fall asleep. That's why we call it a practice. Like you practice a piano, da 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 and little by little you learn the scales and so forth, the musical instrument. So we're learning a new skill. But um, my question is, so you're attending to the feet. Are you going through the line attending to your feet? Yeah. Now supposing you give the, the cashier $20 and they, they give you five cents back and, and the thing only costs seven cents. <laughs> but I'm with my feet, you know, they're really clear. Uh, see, um, at that point, you can use anything to help you steady yourself. So I don't mean to totally mock it. But if you're in that situation, what, you can use your attention to the clerk. To, and also, when you feel bored, boredom is not an enemy. It's just true. So let's say... Uh, it felt good, and you see, wow, now I know what they're talking about. I had a bit of awareness, and then it's gone, and then you get bored. But in our practice, everything is welcome. So, uh, boredom, fine. Learn how to become aware of boredom. Don't try to squash it or crush it or, or let it control you by saying, <clears throat> this is boring, I'm just not going to do any more of this. Uh, that is what you attend to. So we're learning how to pay attention to ourselves, our inner life, as we attend to the clerk, let's say, as we attend to the packaging, as we attend to exchange, you know, the, the uh, change being given, and so forth. And from time to time, when it's appropriate, if being with the feet, touch points, if that helps you, sure. But how new are you to this? Pretty new. Yeah, so like my third week. <laughs> okay. Take, take, get more teachings, because once you get the teachings, you'll see that uh, everything I was saying will more and more become you'll know what to do. Just, I, at this point, I wouldn't give up yet. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else, please, from this side of the room? Good. Uh. <laughs> I love this kid, and I also hate him, but all right, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I feel like 
Yeah. <laughs> you see what I... See? It says the feeling is mutual. See what I mean? I'm up against, you know, he's quick on the draw. Go ahead. Well, it, it's, it's a question that's been brewing for a while. In math, we just finished, like, proportions and fractions and whatever. And I, I, it was all about, like, the this for that and that for this. What do you mean this for that and that like, for that? Try. As in, like, sort of risk, benefit, and this option against that option. Wait, are we still with the skill of math or your reaction no. to it? No, no, no. Well, it's still like, I just use the math because that's what that's, uh, got me thinking about this. But I started thinking about, because it's like this over this, like, there's a two over a four, then it's half there. Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking about in life when you there's something that you're thinking about, and then there's a period where it's beneficial, and then a period where when it's harmful. Like it mm -hmm. happens every second of every day. Like today I went for a swim in Walden Pond. And I swam out into the middle of the lake and I was having a blast. I was pretending I was an Olympic swimmer and racing and I won the gold medal, of course, and you know, it was great fun. <laughs> and then I realized that I'm never going to win a gold medal because I swim at two miles an hour. And that brought me for like a couple seconds of suffering and then I realized, well, at least I can come back to Walden Pond and still swim and pretend I'm an Olympic swimmer. <laughs> but the thing is that, I, that's, that's just one example. Um, it's enough. <laughs> I can hardly handle this one example. You're pushing me beyond my capacity. All right, go ahead. So there's a period of happiness and then there's a period of suffering. Yeah. And I'm wondering, when is there too much suffering and not enough happiness? Like, when can you judge... At all. See, what, you're still on the level of thinking. This is not meditation. None of this is meditation. Sorry. Well, yeah, I was swimming. No, you can meditate while swimming. In other words, when you swim, just swim. You don't make up stuff. Swimming, I'm an Olympic medal. Everyone's applauding. I get on TV, CNN, 18 but trillion people. What? But it was fun. You know? Yes, but I know it was fun. In the short run, it felt good. But that's what we're all doing. We're making up stuff. And as you get older, but look, it didn't work, did it? You know why? Because it was a fantasy. Okay, now let's say you did win. You do become an Olympic winner. And actually, you, get, you grow up. You're older and stronger. And you actually are an Olympic uh, medal winner. Do you think then, oh great, my life will be fine now. Do you think so? Well, I have a hunch. That, you see, that would be nice. But first of all, probably you won't even want, by then you won't want to be an Olympic swimmer. I wanted to be the fastest drawer in the West when I was seven years old. That doesn't interest me anymore. I don't... <laughs> so, but look, let's play this back. You, this is a meditation center, right? Okay, so I'm just... And I'm going to answer you from this perspective, and you can take it or leave it. It's up to you. Okay. Um, what this is saying... Look, uh, a lot of what we do is... When we make up a future that's wonderful,
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.